there are a lot of things that we don't have names for or words for. For example, these two little lines from your nose to your upper lip. What are, what are those called? You look in a Graves anatomy chart, no name for them. There's a lot of uh, things we have, we have, we have no names for, some things we have, some things we do that should be in the dictionary, but they're not. But take heart, there's somebody, a guy's coming out with a book it's, that has all of those things for which we have no names, he has them named. He calls them Sniglets. Okay? So I guess there is a Sniglet dictionary coming out soon. Now let me tell you some of the things that are in that Sniglet dictionary. There is agonosis. Now agonosis is a combination of the words agony and kenosis, gnosis, which is the Greek word for knowledge. Now agonosis is the syndrome that causes you to turn in and watch the opening shot of ABC Wide World of Sports to see that skier wipe out. You know what I'm talking about, who suffers the agony of defeat. Now, you just have to turn in and watch that. That's called agonosis. Baldage. <laughs> baldage. Baldage is the accumulation of hair in the shower drain. Uh, you'd be glad to know that. Tomorrow you can say to your spouse, Honey, you're in charge of baldage today. There is bolokinetics. Now, bolokinetics is the action that, of your body to try to change the direction of a bowling ball as it heads down the, down the alley. You know the one where you lean in the direction. You know, that's called bolokinetics. Uh, My favorite is... FLARP switch, F-L-A-R-P, S-W-I-T-C-H. Now, a FLARP switch is the switch that is in every household has absolutely no purpose whatsoever. You know, you, honey, did you turn off the FLARP switch? Yeah, I turned it off. It's that switch for which there is absolutely no purpose. Now, I submit to you that most of our lives are lived out in you know, in that category, our lives fall into the category of the sniglets. We have uh, words for those special moments in our life, those high moments in our life. We refer to them as thresholds. Man, I'm on a threshold of something good. Or we talk about um, crossroads. My life is at a crossroads. And we have names for those periods of our life that are high moments and special moments, but what do you call the day-by-day -day routine of getting up, going to work, paying your bills, being accountable, mowing your lawn type living? James Dobson calls that the straight life. And he has a book entitled Serious Talk to Husbands and Their Wives, and this is how he describes the, the straight life. Listen to it. He said, the straight life for a homemaker is washing dishes three hours a day, is cleaning sinks and scouring toilets and washing floors. It is chasing toddlers and mediating fights between preschool siblings. The straight life is driving station wagging to school and back 
23 times per week. It is, the, it is grocery shopping and baking cupcakes for the class Halloween party. The straight life eventually becomes the parent, the straight life eventually means becoming the parent of an ungrateful teenager, which I assure you is no job for sissies. Certainly, the straight life for the homemaker can be an exhausting experience at times. The straight life for a working man is not much simpler. It's pulling your tired frame out of bed five days a week, 50 weeks out of the year. It's earning a two-week vacation in August and choosing a trip that will please the kids. The straight life is spending your money wisely when you'd rather indulge in a new whatever. It's taking your son bike riding on Saturday when you want so badly to watch the baseball game. It's cleaning out the garage on, the day, on your day off after working 60 hours the week prior. The straight life is coping with head colds and engine tune-ups and crabgrass and income tax farms. It's taking your family to church on Sunday when you've heard every idea the minister has to offer. It's giving a portion of your income to God's work when you already wonder how ends will meet. The straight life for the ordinary garden variety husband and father is everything I've listed and more, much more. My point is that the straight life eventually gets heavy for all of us who are walking the line. There are times when we ask, what am I doing here? Is this all there is to life? Am I destined to plod through my remaining years with this never-ending responsibility? What do you call that life of the day-by-day -day routine of responsible living? James Dobson calls it the straight life. I think there's an, a larger question than that question. It's this one. How do you get prepared for that kind of life? Oh, sure. There will be crisis moments in your life. There will be mountain peaks in your life, crucial moments in your life. But this is where life is lived. This is the real stuff. This is where futures are planned. This is where relationships are developed. This is where families are raised. And you won't escape the, st the straight life unless you become a derelict that just kind of wanders around from place to place or you become kind of a Howard Hughes, Elvis Presley recluse hiding away in some dark penthouse while the world passes you by. Most of our lives are lived in the straight life category. And I think we need to be reminded that Moses didn't cross the Red Sea every other day. Most of his life was lived plodding out day by day by everlasting boring day in the wilderness. And Methuselah, who lived 959 years, must have had a bad century or two along the way called the straight life. A group of war correspondents were interviewed at, a, at an anniversary of a battle by some reporter, and this reporter asked one of the, the men, what was the most uh, memorable experience as a war correspondent? His answer will surprise you. He said, the thing that shocked me most was this, that most of our life was lived. 95% of our time was spent 
in unbearable boredom between raging battles were these long periods of unbearable boredom, he said. Now he said, we were prepared for the raging battles. You can get ready for those crisis moments, but we weren't ready for this 9% of unbearable boredom, so we turned to drugs and alcohol and everything else. I want to ask you this morning, how do you get ready for the 95% of unbearable boredom that's a part of your life and the life of your family? Gordon MacDonald, that name sounds familiar to many of you, told about having a chorus in the seminary. He had two classes under the famous theologian, Art Buchner. And he said, I had a class in the afternoon and one in the morning under this professor. And in the afternoon, he said, I had a, class, a paper that I had to prepare and read. So he said, I skipped the morning class. Sound familiar? He said, I skipped the morning class to prepare for the afternoon class. And he said, after I finished reading my paper, Dr. Buchner said, Gordon, that was a good paper, but it wasn't a great one. You know why it wasn't a great one? Let me tell you why it wasn't a great one. It wasn't a great paper because you sacrificed the routine in order to write it. And Gordon said, all of a sudden a light came on for me, a window opened up of knowledge that the people who are the most effective are not the people who sacrifice the routine for the extraordinary. Said Gordon MacDonald, most of us think that we live our lives on mountain peaks when actually we live our lives on the sides of the hills or in the valleys. The question is, how do you get ready for the 95% boredom? That's where this passage comes in. Now on your way to this passage, back to, again, I hope you kept it open, I want you to read with me 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's just a little bit past Ephesians. Everybody needs to turn to it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I want, to get, I want to read in the last part of verse 10. If you have a, a New American Standard, the sentence begins with the word but. Okay. Now follow with me. Middle of verse 10. But we urge you, brethren. You find it? You won't find it unless you look for it. Right. But, we, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Now freeze it, as Dick Vitale says. Freeze it. I want you to put your finger on that and look right up here. He's saying what all of us are always encouraged to do, to excel. If you're going to be a student, excel. If you're going to be an athlete, excel. Be the best you can be is the commercial. Now he's saying... I urge you, I beg you to excel. In what? Now, look back at what he says we're to excel in doing. And to make your ambition to lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, work with your hands just as we commanded you. You know what he's saying? He's saying that we are to excel in living the straight life. Now, they're in the straight life, they are those who are casualties. They just give up on it. They quit. They bail out of marriages. They give up on their kids. They quit their jobs. They just sign off casualties. They are survivors in the straight life, and then they are heroes in the straight life. 
And what Paul is saying is this, I want you to be a hero in living the straight life. And here's how you do it, Ephesians chapter 6. Now we need to get some context of Ephesians 6 because this is the classic passage on two great spiritual truths, spiritual warfare and the armor of Christ. And, 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 and the context of this is absolutely shocking and surprising. The Apostle Paul takes this picture of a Roman soldier ready for battle and he uses his armor to describe the Christian's armor. In fact, he takes every piece of the soldier's armor and he illustrates a, a, a Christian truth thereby. And the context of this runs from chapter 5 to, to chapter 6, verse 20. And this whole collection of Scripture, this whole collection of verses, is really a collection, a classic collection on family relationships. That'll shock you. He deals with family relationships. If you have a New American Standard Bible, you probably at the top of it, it probably, one section it has family relationships, the next section has the armor of Christ, and they go together because what Paul is saying is this, is that this is how one is to be equipped in family relationships, the armor of Christ. As a matter of fact, chapters 5 and 6 are called household codes of behavior. For what you find in chapters 5 and 6 are ways that a person is to live out his family life. And if you study it a little farther, you discover that he also deals with the subject of the Spirit-filled life. So surprisingly enough, you have this passage on family relationships framed on one side by the doctrine of the Spirit-filled life and on the other side by the armor of Christ. And what Paul is saying is this, that you need to be able to apply the truths of the doctrine of the Spirit-filled life and the principles of Christian armor to how you live out your family life. As husbands and wives, as parents to children, even as slaves in a household. Now there are three things that are necessary. Watch this, hang right in here with me and see if we can't get some teaching on this. There are three things that are essential in living the straight life as a hero. Number one, you need to understand that your life lived out in battle. This is a battle. And we live our lives and we raise our families in a war zone. There's a war going on. And this battle, this war that's raging is a war between the forces of God and the forces of evil and it's been going on since the garden. And if you don't understand that you're living your life and your children are growing up in a battle, in a war zone, you're in grave peril. Somebody said that there are three kinds of people. There are people who influence what is happening there are people who watch what is happening and there are people who don't have the slightest clue as to what is happening. Unfortunately, many Christians fall into the last category. We don't have the slightest idea of what's happening and that is a dangerous thing. What is happening is, is that we are living our lives in the midst of a dynamic struggle. 
Our attention this past week has been riveted on the Middle East and what's going on over there as these treaties are trying to be ratified. And there is a war going on in the Middle East that's gone on forever. I mean, you can't put a bracket and say it started here and it's finished here. It's been going on at least since Abraham. And the Arab and the Jew have been fighting for, you know, ad infinitum. The significant thing about all of it is, is that most of those families over there, even though they live in the midst of this battle, they carry on with a certain degree of normality. They, they get married, and they have children, and they build schools, and the tourists come and go. I was out at the hospital Sunday afternoon making some visits, and I saw a lady in the hospital. We talk from time to time. And uh, she's not a member of our congregation, but she stopped me. She said, I just got back from the Holy Land. I got back day before yesterday, she said. I said, wow, you're pretty courageous. I said, what would you feel over there? What would you see? She said, well, you know, the amazing thing, Gerald, is that we were totally aware of the war going on around us. We could hear the shots being fired. We saw people dressed in, in army clothes and, and, and military uh, equipment and vehicles everywhere. But she said, no, the amazing thing is that even though there is this war going on, people are going on about their lives with a certain amount of normal living. There is a battle going on. Now let me tell you four things about this battle. One, it's God's battle. That is, it has cosmic significance. Now watch this carefully. The battle that is raging is a battle between the forces of God and the forces of evil and it has cosmic implications. That is, if this battle is lost in your life and in your family, it has eternal implications both to you and your children. It's not some child's play. Second, this is primarily a spiritual battle, therefore we need spiritual protection and spiritual weapons. The Apostle Paul said, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but spiritual to the tearing down of, of uh, strongholds so that if you do not have spiritual protection for you and your kids and you're not equipped, prepared with spiritual armor and spiritual weapons, then you are in grave danger. Number three, the enemy that engages us in this battle is a crafty, viciously crafty, successful enemy. The Apostle Paul refers to the schemes of the devil. Now that word schemes there is a word that means a carefully planned, thought out method of assault. He's been in this longer than we have. As a matter of fact, the devil has been practicing how to get to your life since Adam and Eve. And he knows everything about you young people. He knows the places of your vulnerability and he's aware when you compromise sexually or emotionally and he knows exactly how to attack you. He's a vicious and formidable opponent and you are not equipped to deal with him on your own. Number four, this battle is ultimately won already in Christ. Now you say, well, if the battle is already won, why are we still fighting, you know? Let me see if I can illustrate it like this. I used to run track. And maybe we'd have a three-team uh, uh, track meet. There are times when 
in the middle of the track meet, you would know who's going to win because a team could uh, com uh, compile enough points so that if the uh, uh, opposition did the best you could do in every other event, still wouldn't get enough points to beat you. So that you know there are certain times in a track meet where it's possible that you could, you could already be declared a winner. No way they could beat you. But you go ahead and carry out the other events. Let me say this without being blasphemous. In the great cosmic track meet that took place at Calvary and at the, at the empty tomb, God gained enough points so the devil cannot possibly win. And yet the events keep on playing out and it is possible for you individually to lose even though the ultimate victory has already been won. You understand what I'm saying? And you need to understand that the ultimate victory has been won and if you get on God's side, you're on the winning side. Okay? Number two. Second thing that's important in living the straight life is this. That in the midst of the battle, God's protection is available. Now his protection is called the armor of Christ. And it refers to this collective protection that God makes available. It is spiritual primarily. It's not protection you can see really or touch. It is spiritual and it means this. Now watch this. It is understanding and applying the wisdom of God. God's protection is understanding and applying His wisdom to life. And he uses terms like this. He talks about the helmet of salvation, etc. And I don't have time to really deal with each one of those pieces. Books and volumes are written on it, literally. Uh, Lloyd-Jones has an entire book just on the armor and, and, and a discussion of it. But I just want to just brush them briefly. The helmet of salvation. Now listen to what I'm saying. It refers to the fact that a person has available to him a protection because he is a believer. He's been saved and he has the mind of Christ. The breastplate of righteousness means that my heart is right with God because I can be doing things like going to church on Sunday and have good activities, but my heart may not be right. My heart is right. The belt of truth refers to the fact that I'm totally honest with God and with myself. I'm not a hypocrite. My feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I know I've been saved. I know what I believe and I know what I believe and why I believe it. And I'm not only prepared by the gospel, I'm prepared for the gospel. That is, I'm willing to share the gospel with other people. My feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel. I have the sword of the Spirit, which is the word. That word, word there, is the word rhema. It means God's word to you, what he tells you in your spirit. And you have the shield of faith by which you, 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 you protect yourself against the fiery missiles of the devil. And you have prayer, which is the ultimate piece of weaponry of the offensive weapon. Now this is what Paul is saying. Watch this. He's saying that these principles must be understood, explained, and lived out in every family if they're going to be prepared for the 95% boredom. Wow. Now I need to say two things about the weapons. Number one, it's the full armor. That is, he said, take on the full armor. 
There are no optional pieces. You can't say this morning that you're prepared for the battle if you don't know the gospel and are not willing to share it. You can't say this morning that you're prepared for the battle if you are dishonest in your relationships with God and with others. The belt of truth. So that there are no optional pieces. It would be like a person saying, play, playing the Super Bowl, saying to his coach, it's hot out there and I don't want to wear my helmet. You leave off one piece and you're doomed. You're a candidate for his assault, the enemy's assault. Second thing we need to understand about the weapons is that the, this is the dress that you need to wear every day. It's not just for the crisis moments. It's for every day's living. It's for getting up in the morning and heading off to school and equipping yourself with the, with the armor of Christ. It's getting up in the morning and dealing in your relationships with one another armed with the armor of Christ. It's what you put on every day. John Calvin preached 400 years ago. This is what he said about the armor. He said, God not only promises us His protection, but He places in our hands the means of protection. Unfortunately, most of us leave the armor hanging on a hook. That's what happens. We have in our hands, we have at our disposal, the means of protection. But most of us leave the armor hanging on a hook. And we go out into the world totally unprepared for it. I heard a man tell about his father who worked in a nuclear reactor plant of some sort. And he told about what his father had to put on every morning. He put on this dress, he said, even to gloves. And he said if he wasn't totally dressed from the feet to the top of his head, that nuclear uh, activity, radioactivity would invade his life, his body, and he'd, he'd be totally unnoticed. It'd be like getting x-rays, no pain, no burning sensation, and before he knew it, he would be destroyed. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. One last thought, please. And I know it's time to go, so I'll quit after this thought. In the midst of the battle, God is nearby. In the midst of the battle, God is nearby. And that's what he's referring to here as prayer. He says, pray, pray. Now, the best way to practice God's presence is to develop a daily life of prayer. I need to say that again. The best way to practice the presence of God is to have a daily prayer life where you have communion with God on a daily basis. Therefore, when the enemy attacks, you are aware of his presence. I have a feeling that most of us pray from crisis to crisis. Somebody said that when a guy falls out of a 10-story building, halfway down asking God not to let him fall is a little late. And sometimes when you get in the midst of a crisis, it's too late to pray then. That prayer life must be developed in the life. There's a family by the name of Bailey. Joe Bailey and his wife have seven kids. I've read their testimonies in several books and guideposts and others. Three of those children died one right after another in unexpected and tragic deaths. Boom, boom, boom. I'm going to talk in this series about how to get yourself ready for the unbearable and the unexpected. 
like Job. Three of their children died, one right after another. And Joe Bailey said, I'm so glad that when our family came to this crisis in our lives, we didn't have to turn to prayer. We were already people of prayer. We were already praying. And that helped us survive. Mark Conley has a, a play that opened on Broadway. I've got it in a book. I read it often. It's a play that visualizes how, how it must look if, to the earth, on the earth, if God were black. Now, I don't want to be disrespectful, and I'm definitely not uh, a race, racist. But this marvelous play, written several years ago, opened on Broadway, and it's the picture, it pictures God as a black man with a big cigar. And in this play, there is a scene in which Moses gives up the authority, his authority to Joshua. He's done something, you know, he's, he's messed up, so he didn't get to go into Canaan. And he's surrendering his, the, his um, authority over to Joshua and giving up his people. And there's this poignant scene as Moses stands there with slumped shoulder watching the last Israeli disappear over the horizon in a cloud of dust. And God steps out from behind a boulder. Now Moses doesn't even look back. He senses God there because he and God are on a person-to-person basis, relationship. And without ever turning around, Moses says, You're with me, aren't you, Lord? And the Lord says, Of course I am, Moses. Of course I am. Now, it is important when you get in the battle to understand that God is in the battle. As near as the skin on your flesh as the flesh on your bones and that relationship is developed in the straight life let me see if i can sum it up we live our life in a war zone we have protection available and we have a presence available and that ain't no sniglet that's the real truth Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that we'll get ready for the struggle for the life that really we live, the reality of it. That if there are those here this morning who have not professed their faith in Jesus Christ, do not have the helmet of salvation, they might come to know Christ today by simple faith. And for Christians who are not living victoriously and triumphantly or failures in the Christian life. They'd get the armor on. I pray, God, for your, the moving of your spirit to reveal and to encourage us. For I ask in Jesus' name. Now, in a spirit of prayer, I'm going to ask you to stand. And as we give our invitation this morning, we invite you to come on the first word.